All right, it's part two of part three of the American political switcheroo, Tom. It is, and it's a wonderful moment. We're coming to the end of this saga. We are, but of course, the story continues for you at home because it's real life. <laughs> If you just go on Twitter, you see daily updates. Absolutely. Well, I'm Alberto. And I'm Tom. And this is Pardon Me Butler. And this is the show where, yes, we still research now. We're getting sick and tired of this research. So you better appreciate the absolute living hell out of all this work. Mm, I think Battlefront's going on straight after this, isn't it? Definitely. And not, not the awful new version, the classic 04. Yeah. Star Wars Battlefront, you know, where you run around as a stormtrooper and... Kill the re- I mean, you, you run around as a rebel and you overthrow the Empire. I would no, never no. play it the other way around. Oh, no, of course. Stormtroopers, you know, they're fighting for order and peace in the galaxy, right? I love, I love, I am the law and order president. <laughs> Nixon right, before, or Trump, who knows? <laughs> before we get controversial, right? Right, so, so we left off um, with the first half of part three and f- wrapping up about George Bush senior George H.W. Bush and his very foreign policy focused presidency and how he actually raised taxes even though he said read my lips no new taxes <laughs> hmm. begins a sort of theme of republican dishonesty but you know what democrat dishonesty as well let's not pretend that's a one-sided issue so this is Clinton right coming into 1992 mm-hmm. and This is after a string of five losses in six elections, right? From 68 to 88. And then Clinton kind of breaking that from Arkansas and defeating the incumbent Bush, which was the last guy to only serve for the four years, right? And then, um, well, hopefully that will happen again soon. Yeah, it's been a long time since we had um, a one-term president, but hopefully we will get that again uh, with, with Trump. So if you're not voting, listener, and you have the capability to do so, I mean, you need to vote. No question. Absolutely. And so it was Clinton and Al Gore who would later famously lose in that 2000 election with the dispute over the Florida voting ballots, right? And then, so they kind of ran on what was sometimes referred to as the New Covenant, which is like a sacred agreement, right? Sorry, this is 1992, right? 1992, Clinton. Yeah, Yeah, that's where we're at. And so that was all for American progressivism rooted in the values of opportunity for all and responsibility for all, with Clinton pledging as president, right, that he would have a cabinet and administration that looked like America. And um, he has to begin to see America's growing diversity as like a great strength and a reason to draw together, which... Contrast that with someone like Tucker Carlson today saying... Diversity weakens us, right? You know, how if you don't speak the same language as your neighbor, you cannot have an effective community, country, whatever. Um, and of course, you know, Tucker Carlson makes uh, a valid point that if you can't speak the same language as your neighbor, then maybe you will have a more difficult time coming together. But that's really like, you know, mm. it's, it's only half of the step that you would normally take, right? After yeah. you go, oh, well, we have a language barrier then you work together because you have a common interest. His rhetoric, of course, from the right wing is immigration is bad and destroying America, you know, the the white male-dominated country mm. that it's supposed to be. Well, thankfully, Clinton was not like that. And he managed to live up to this pledge, right? And he 
built his cabinet and White House staff really in favour of this. So he appointed more non-white people and women than any president in history up to that point. And this is one little tidbit that I found quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And in 1995, he appointed an African-American director of White House speech writing. And I felt that was quite significant because if you think about it, that's a black man crafting the words that the president will use to address the world, right? Mm -hmm. So if you imagine like an Andrew Jackson having to deal with that, (laughs) it would not quite have been up his alley. And then he would later also, Clinton would later also appoint an African-American deputy chief of staff, director of political affairs, director of White House personnel, director of intergovernmental affairs, direct a lot of directors that were mm-hmm. really showing this diversity. And the key word, right, director, not just assistant or um, members of department, right? Yeah, it's not just people in, mm-hmm. in leadership positions, which I felt was significant. Yeah, and, you know, not to jump ahead of ourselves here, but, you know, even when you get to Bush, you know, you see um, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and um, you know, women and people of colour, and sometimes even both, in higher positions in, in government and in cabinets, etc. Um, and then you get to Obama, who continues the same trend and actually has a much more diverse cabinet. Um, and then it, uh, you saw with the Trump election really reverse. And I think this, we've reached the point with Clinton now that we can just start drawing comparisons to the modern time without really having to kind of go through all the historical steps. Mm. You know, compare Clinton and, and the Democrats there to Trump today. I mean, even frankly, with the Bush presidency compared to Trump today, even though it's only like, what, just over 10 years ago. Trump has basically like the whitest cabinet in recent history, right? mm. the most male Um and it's just an, it's an incredibly backwards shift and it's this sort of professed belief that a lot of republicans have now is that you know we should be colorblind right it's in the spirit of martin luther king jr uh, to say that we should not see color but that ignores all of the issues that come with it right yeah so i mean it completely ignores all the issues that exist because of color and because of race and and actually we can't pretend that those don't exist um, it's been a long time since MLK, and progress has not been fast. And a lot of Republicans, uh, you know, they say, well, it doesn't matter about equality of outcome, right? Equality of opportunity exists. And the problem is that it may look like that based on the laws, but it's not the actual reality. Mm. Um, and, and so the issue is they go, well, there's no discriminatory practices in terms of, uh, like, say, mortgage lending now, right? Like that's that's been gone away by multiple laws and multiple changes to laws over time that were designed to to combat these issues like redlining where uh, credit for mortgages wasn't offered to to black people even if they made more money than you know white people and this is because of race right or they wanted to buy in a certain neighborhood and that's why you have so many black neighborhoods now where either homeowners don't really exist or um, black people were never able to get on the property ladder and build wealth and thus contributing to the wealth gap that you have today where black people are way, way less likely to have money mm. than uh, like wh- white families. Um, so you can't be colorblind because those issues exist and they are perpetuated because of race. And even though they say, oh, there's you know, equality of opportunity and that's it, I think a lot of the people in the right wing portray Democrats as wanting guaranteed uh, equality of outcome 
And it's, it's not true, but it's how they paint it. And it's a very alluring picture because it's like, well, that sounds like socialism and, and Soviet communism and all that. But if black people, because they're black and have had all this historical inability to access wealth and property and education of high quality, how can you say that, oh, well, you know, race doesn't matter? Because actually they'll never be able to be equal except for like the few occasional high performers and stuff. But mm. um, that's why you have like these massive protests now in the States. And you, did you see this video, Tom, of this woman who was saying, you know, we don't own anything. I'll see if I can find it actually and play it because it is really good. Um, but it just talks about how um, black people have not been able to accumulate wealth and, and such. And it's because mm. of race. Um, and so that's why you have like these, if there are riots and stuff, it doesn't really matter and looting because the property is not owned by black people themselves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, I mean, that's just a comparison of, of how the modern conservatives view it, right? They go, well, if the laws say that it's equal, that's it. It doesn't matter what the reality actually is. That's yeah. not my problem. And then, so then, you know, we think back to Clinton and how he set up this president's office for, for One America, which was an initiative on race and that invitation for the American people to speak honestly and openly about the causes, effects and remedies of the lingering racial division, which, you know, so this is in 1992 and it had been some 24 years, like not really since Lyndon Johnson had the country been really called upon to face the issue so head on. But I see you've got this video up now if you want yeah, to play uh, that. Yeah, briefly play yeah. this. And again, this is like looking at kind of Republicans and conservatives today and how they look at racial issues. But I think this this kind of thing is already coming about in the 90s mm. between the left and the right. Um, all right, I hope, that, hope this volume is, is going to work all right. Oh, hang on, it's quite quiet. you mentioned there Tulsa right that was the black wall street that was then attacked by um white supremacists I believe which yeah. is not something we'll go to here but I think no. it's something worth looking up yourself um that yeah, was I mean, that, that's that, quite that, a powerful that's thing that's something really. that I was never taught in school you know this Tulsa mm. killings and I went to school in a fairly liberal district just outside Washington DC most liberal area in the country actually well, that video, certainly powerful. And especially the closing, looking for equality, not revenge. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you know, you could be, you could be seeing black people um, heavily armed, taking to the streets and, and killing people. And mm -hmm. that's not happening. And 
to some extent, you actually wonder, well, why hasn't that been the case, right? It's because they've known that it'd be so, um, it would work against them so much that mm. it doesn't actually, it wouldn't be effective. Um, but it has happened before. Um, I think in Dave Chappelle's um, recent uh, special that he did for Netflix a couple months ago, um, I think it's called 823, I think, because that's um, how long um, George Floyd's neck was being leaned on in the video. Yeah. Um, he, he was going on uh, and mentioned how um, there had been, I think, an ex-military guy who went and killed a few police officers um, down in Louisiana, in like Baton Rouge or mm. New Orleans. Um, and, you know, that was like super sensationalized. And it's true that, you know, if black people weren't looking for, if they were looking for revenge, it'd be a really, really bad situation um, in the U.S. right now. But the, the point there, again, is that, you know, we don't own anything, right? It's not ours. We don't own anything. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of that is because of um, laws that even when they've been implemented then, people go, oh, well, you know, that's it. Too bad. And I think a lot of the sort of conservative perspective doesn't take into account these long-term realities, right? Where you go, well, that's that's the law, but actually what's going what's the consequence going to be? Or, oh, well, we have the war on drugs. Sounds great. I mean, when you realize it's completely ineffective after only a few years, no, keep going, keep going, you know, left and right will both be a part of this. And it's actually an issue because uh, a matter of perspective, right? When you start having only wealthier white voices, often Mm. male, dictating all these policies, they have no idea what the reality is on the ground. And so policy is completely ineffective, especially when you're up at the federal level, which is so removed from local communities. Yeah. Um, Well, speaking of that, so thinking of the, I guess, economic sort of principles behind Clinton's administration as we move through those eight years, what did you find um, some of maybe the key call outs that kind of represent the whole? Yeah, so so Clinton... um, so Clinton himself was one of these, quote, new Democrats. So they were culturally liberal, but fiscally more moderate or conservative. Um, and these kind of Democrats really dominated the party in sort of that era up until the mid-2010s. Mm. Um, what you had in the 1994 elections was this Republican revolution. So, and that was um, the midterms, right? That's the midterms, correct. So after two years of Clinton, um, you have these Repo- this Republican revolution. And all the Republicans came in behind this kind of one spokesman, this Georgia congressman, Newt Gingrich. And, and they had this, quote, contract with America. So they were saying that Clinton was not a new Democrat, but actually a, quote, tax and spend liberal. Um, and so what they wanted to do was reduce federal taxes, balance the budget and dismantle these social welfare programs. Right. Um, so Democrats had ruled Congress for basically six decades since the New Deal. Um, and this came to an end with the Republicans coming to power. Um, and really since the mid-90s, Republicans have also dominated uh, local elections across the country and really hindered progress. I mean, mm. that's why there's just frankly no progress in this country right now. Right. Um, so it was interesting because Clinton, for most of his term, his two terms, had to work with a Republican Congress. Um, and so there's certain things that there, there's one thing in particular I want to focus on that I think might strike some people as a bit strange for Democrat today, because a lot of 
what we think of Democrats are progressive kind of liberals, right? Like your Bernie Sanders, your Elizabeth Warren types, yeah. your Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, even though, quite frankly, that's, in terms of Congress, a small, smaller proportion of the Democrats that are in, in Congress than these more moderates, often who have been there for a long time. So with Clinton and the Republicans, you had welfare reform, you had the state children's health insurance program, um, and this welfare reform, for example, it required people to to work, and so it was trying to actually reduce the number of people on welfare reform, on welfare um, and make it harder for people to claim welfare. Um, you had the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999. Sounds very exciting, I know. So this repealed part of Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which was put in after, uh, you know, during the Great Depression, basically after the economic crash of 1929. So Glass-Steagall had put up a lot of barriers that prevented banks and security companies and insurance companies from acting as any combination of an investment bank, commercial bank, and insurance company. So now they could consolidate because that part of Glass-Steagall was repealed. The issue with this Financial Services Modernization Act is that it didn't give any regulatory or agency the authority to actually regulate the investment bank holding companies. Um, and interestingly, Democrats only really agreed to support the bill after Republicans decided that they would strengthen these anti-redlining provisions from the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act. So we're talking a period of 22 years from, oh, we've, we've created this anti-redlining act that mm. prevents people, uh, banks, from discriminating based on race for lending. 22 years later, we still haven't solved the problem of black people being unable en masse as a large block to access mortgages and housing and thus build their own equity and wealth. Which is exactly... That's right. exactly the point I'm making I don't about long-term. Yeah, long-term racial inequalities because of race, right? Because now they go, well, okay, we can't redline because of um, the fact that you're a particular race, but... Uh, so different... re- redlining was the case of a bank could not... They could make the decision when redlining was... When they were allowed to. They could make the decision not to loan based on the financial status of an area, but because areas are so often like a black neighborhood and a a Hispanic neighborhood, Mm -hmm. they were able to just basically write off an entire one because it was like dominoes, right? One person isn't able to afford it because of the racial injustice and not being able to get a well-paid job. And then they say, oh, well, that person can't. That means all these other people then suddenly can't. And then it Mm -hmm. just snowballs, right? Absolutely. And the issue with wealth is that as it goes down over time, you know, generations accumulate wealth um, and it's really important for stuff to be passed down, especially in a time where things are becoming more expensive, like university education, right? Mm-hmm. So if now it's like certain basic things are becoming more expensive or, uh, you know, the minimum wage, which a lot of people in black neighborhoods um, are, are paid, that hasn't kept up with the cost of living. And Republicans now refuse to acknowledge that gap and democrats who are progressives say we need to raise the minimum wage it needs to keep pace with the cost of living and republicans go no no it doesn't matter because the minimum wage these are supposed to be temporary jobs i don't know if you've been into uh an american mcdonald's or wherever tom but the people working there are not some 
high schoolers on like a you know very temporary job mm. a lot of them are middle-aged black and hispanic people especially women so like, well that's not a temporary job unless your other job is cleaning yeah cooking babysitting um, picking fruit these other kinds of uh what we'd call low skill or manual labor jobs yeah so again it's just reality versus the, the well well it's this is what's written into the laws mm. and that's it there's a the minimum wage good enough in fact now the republicans are moving so far to the right with libertarianism that it's you know free market will determine the wages yeah free market based off of economics which is concentrating wealth at the top uh, minimum regulations, minimum minimum wage laws, you know, or none at all, the market will correct itself. Hmm. Well, really what happens is just that you build so much poverty that people just kind of get by bit by bit. Uh, and the issue is that when it reaches a, a head in the 2008 crisis, um, uh, the, the credit crisis, the whole banking system falls apart, right? Yeah. But before we get to that... Just to, to kind of wrap up stuff on Clinton. So, you know, there was a budget surplus. Um, the presidency was basically the sort of... It, it, these Democrats were aligned with big business, basically. Right. I think that's something really important to note, that why would you be passing this kind of law that allows all these banks to consolidate and not actually be regulated properly? What, just because they're getting some strengthened bits of the community reinvestment act no way right it's democrats and republicans at this point are basically in the pocket of big business they Mm. need the money they take the money for elections or whatever else it may be uh you know they get defense contractors to create jobs in their district this is more of the modern politics that we have and it creates a lot of issues and with perceived corruption etc yeah foreign policy wise i think it's also important to note that you know, this is, again, you see the Democrats aren't that different from the Republicans in terms of foreign policy. Um, and that seems to be a common thread that we've had. So yeah. um, there was U.S. military intervention in the Bosnia and Kosovo wars, which frankly uh, includes a genocide, um, even though a lot of people don't actually want to use that term because of their, I suppose, alignment with Serbia for some reason. Mm. Um, signed the Iraq Liberation Act to oppose Saddam Hussein, tried to advance the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and assisted Northern Irish peace process. So, foreign policy-wise, not, not that different from, um, you know, how, how is that very different from uh, his predecessor, H.W. Bush? Yeah. Not really. Um, but then you get to actual George Bush, mm. his son, one of his sons. Um, <laughs> what can you tell us about Bush and, and his sort of uh, views on race, shall we say? And does this tie into compassionate conservatism at all? Well, as we all remember, as Kanye so eloquently put it, George Bush hates black people. But besides that, um, so like you mentioned, he referred to himself as a compassionate conservative in his election campaign. And all of that was, I think, so. Sort of, traditional conservative ideas, right? Like the small government, free market principles. Um, but some of the key call-outs really throughout his tenure, he wasn't exactly enamoured with caring for minorities, but he wasn't as hostile as he would be as, as Trump is right now, right? Look, George Bush was going up there trying to speak Spanish. Mm. 
you cannot possibly compare that to Donald Trump, you know? Exactly. And he... But nevertheless, he did oversee, really, some significant uh, changes in the Civil Rights Division, especially of the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And just throughout his eight years, basically, there was rather an effort to water down that division. And this is a division that is the most powerful advocate for civil rights, that they are in the federal government. And this included things such as moving away from pattern and practice cases in employment litigation to then focusing on the individual cases. So this would be a company not really suffering for genuine bad practice and over the course of many years, say, like consistently hiring only white white males, say, but then they would be able to suffer for, say, a single egregious case, you know? So it's not solving Mm -hmm. the problem. It's kind of just plugging up the the big hole. So what I wonder, actually, is, is this more, maybe more of a case of we are so aligned with big business, and frankly, business in general, mm. that business would not want any kind of systemic case made against them that in, results in a high payout or, you know, public shame or whatever. Yeah. And maybe instead they go, well, it's just one case. Mm. I mean, so I guess it is a bit of conjecture that, but you could possibly make that through line, couldn't you? You could say, oh, we're getting towards the point of more campaign finances from big business and... Mm-hmm. And then you say, oh, look, so all of a sudden big business is not having to suffer as much mm-hmm. for bad practice. But then moving through, there was even a 2007 lawsuit that was overseen by the Civil Rights Division of the Par- Department of Justice. So they filed this one. So, yeah. And this was against Indianapolis for their police hiring practices, which sounds promising. Mm-hmm until you realise that it was due to favouring African-Americans and females over white males in promotions to police sergeant. So this was them them saying in Indianapolis, which is not exactly, I don't know, like, feels pretty white, you know, yeah. <laughs> like if you ever yeah. think of Indiana, say. And they were like, no, this is not fair. All of these white males are suffering so badly from discrimination. Again, it's pretty it's much that, ridiculous, right? It's that you know, colorblind take where, oh, we don't want to look at affirmative action. That's unfair. That's against the spirit of um, MLK Jr. Mm. You know, we, we, we should have total equality of, of opportunity and I don't care about equality of outcome. Yeah. Even if it means there's no black sergeants in the whole country. Well, I guess they just weren't qualified enough. That's just, yeah. That's their take. It's ridiculous. And then there was even a case of something that was brought on, signed on by the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And it was for um, women and having to contest these unrealistic physical fitnesses tests to join the police force. So Clinton signed on to it thinking, yeah, this is a worthy cause. Bush's administration withdrew from it. And an assistant attorney general for civil rights responded with a lecture on how women should exercise and get in better shape, calling the entire case one from civil rights moving into one of just personal feelings and the actual restraints on these fitness tests right it was it's going to be things such as like running a certain speed for a mile and i mean you called this point earlier when we were just chatting right you see the state of some policemen Mm -hmm. like no way they're hitting (laughs) these benchmarks right Mm -hmm. um but really all of this was kind of brought through by kind of like this administration caring more about 
these ideological like preconceptions of their appointees. So if beforehand they'd shown a track record of, let's say, being against abortion, like even if they're not incredibly qualified, they're like, oh, great, you, you, you're aligned with us. You believe in what yeah. we believe in, yeah. right? And so then you just get this real watering down of the Civil Rights Division where between 2003 and 2007, something like 70% of division attorneys left which just significantly depleted capabilities and institutional knowledge. And then you just have the fact that if you were to think ahead to what Obama has to deal with, uh, someone was quoted as saying no administration has had to start from scratch like Obama had to with the Civil Rights Division, right? So that, there is the institutional case. And that, that again, um, against, I think that starts to show the beginnings of the modern movement that has seemed to come across as anti-intellectual, right? Mm. And to the point now, you know, you go from that to what we have today, which is people quoting that there's some sort of uh, deep state conspiracy mm. where academia, media, and politicians are all working together nefariously to, you know, rig the world system, organize the banks, create the swamp. It's all... It's at its heart. It's this weirdly, deeply anti-Semitic, anti-intellectual movement um, that really gets these conservatives to come to the election polls, right? I mean, that's that's what yeah. it's about. I just can't understand how people could fully believe that people have the time to conspire that much. I think about how frustrating it is to try and organize plans for a group of five. Like, yeah. <laughs> are you going to conspire against the entire country? But that, that's but. the issue, Tom. Unfortunately, is that you know decades of. Um, you know, since the nineties, this is this move, uh, particularly against federal, you know, education standards mm. and trying to have a unified, good public education system. Yeah, I mean, the further you move away from that, the more you can convince ordinary people to to believe stupid, crazy shit and vote for you with deep state conspiracies and all this other kind of nonsense that they can put up there from someone mm. like Trump. It's a very malleable, stupid group of people, unfortunately. Um, and frankly, it's through no fault of their own. It's because many times, you know, these people have been voting for what they it sounds great to them, right? Oh, I want to spend less of my tax money on, you know, stuff that is waste, like, mm. you know, public education. And then they can point to particular examples of, I don't know, Look how much money we're spending per student in this district. $50,000. Do you feel like that student is getting $50,000 worth of education? There's no context behind in yeah. terms of how much it costs to actually run a school district or anything. It's just that feels like a lot and I'm going to vote against it. And the ramification is that you have generations of people that believe in, you know, don't wear a mask or anti-vaccine. There's a deep state conspiracy. Mm. This this shit is really like starting to come to uh, political popularity and well, mainstream you, movement. Yeah. Well, you say conspiracy and there was the whole like, you know, uh, 9-11 conspiracy idea, which obviously mm-hmm. Bush oversaw. But so thinking of, you mentioned, you kind of called ahead, right? 2008, there was the whole crash and then there was some, there was some, you could attribute some credit to that through some of the laws that Clinton oversaw coming in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about, so what did Bush really do when it came towards these economic policies? Um, What was his philosophy? Bush, 
it's a very he's a very interesting one. And this is some of the compassionate conservatism, right? Like free markets will figure it out and um, he, less yeah. government involvement. Well, well, actually, so um, the thing is that Bush and this sort of compassionate conservative terminology with which he identified himself. Um, that, I think, has really gone to the wayside by today. So I think there's an important distinction to make there. Um, I think by the time you got to the 2010 elections, or midterms for Obama's first term, um, th- this sort of compassionate conservative movement has completely died in favor mm. of this libertarian, um, total free market, minimal-sized government, sort of Reaganomics on steroids. So yeah. compassionate conservatism, and again, this is, you think about the 90s, it's, frankly, it is a more moderate time. And if you look at how Republicans and Democrats in Congress have shifted their political ideologies over time, Democrats in their representation in Congress have remained, remained fairly stable, slight shift to the left over decades, right, from the 70s till today. Yeah. And Republicans have moved to a point where there's literally no overlap where any Republican is really in the center ideologically. Uh, you, you might have one, which you can make a case for, Olympia Snow, who is no longer in the Senate, Senator from Maine. She was quite moderate. Mm. Susan Collins, kind of, although she's really these days more about party over politics and, and um, common sense kind of legislation. She's the one that said, well, I think Donald Trump has learned uh, you know, he shouldn't be trying to interfere in a foreign election. So that's why she's not going to vote for him to be removed from office. Oh, my Spineless. God. Spineless. Yeah, at least Mitt Romney was the only one that actually... Mitt Romney, of all people. Of all then people, again, yeah. one of the only moderate Republicans out there in the sense of how he views the presidency, etc. Economically, he's quite, you know, pro-big business, etc., being the son of uh, uh, automobile magnate himself. But, and, you know, governor from Massachusetts, past... Romney mm. care, which was the model for Obamacare. I mean, the guy is a fairly moderate Republican. Clearly the only one left in the entire U.S. Senate. And he was only elected recently. Yeah. Um, the only one in the Senate that has any kind of belief in sort of ethics and systems. But I'm getting off track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Bush, compassionate conservative. So it's this idea that conservatism and compassion complement one another. Even right. though many of us would say conservatives don't care about the poor, don't care about um, outcome. If they have equality of opportunity, that's it. Right. We don't care if there's any outcome that's even close. Right. Mm. So compassionate conservatives would see that we have issues and we acknowledge them and they have to be solved, but we'll use cooperation with private companies, charities, and religious organizations rather than using the government directly. So the compassionate part is that they actually care about the problem and want to solve it, mm. which is a big departure from modern conservatives, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but then they want to use religious organizations, private companies, charities, etc. That sounds quite conservative, as we still know it, right? So there's certain things that came in, like you know, welfare reform that needs to promote individual responsibility. So that's actually what happened in the 90s with Clinton and that welfare reform, right? Yeah. Um we want to have welfare. Oh, but, you know, we need to up the individual responsibility of it. Mm. Um, they'll be pro-traditional family, which means, you know, anti-gay. Um, they will have standard-based schooling. So, like, the No Child Left Behind Act, which pushed past. Um, and uh, assisting poor countries around the world, economically or otherwise. Now, there's a great quote 
um, from Nicholas Lehman, who wrote in the New Yorker magazine in 2015, that Bush's, quote, description of himself in the 2000 campaign as a compassionate conservative was brilliantly vague. Liberals heard it as, oh, I'm not all that conservative. And conservatives heard it as, I'm deeply religious. <laughs> it was about him as a person, not a program. And it's totally true, right? Conservatives see that. And the ones that are evangelical, which is now yeah. a very big part of the Republican Party, it's those Southern Democrats that were conservative that came over to the Republican Party. They care about religion, so they say. They yeah. still voted for Trump. But they, they really want to see these kind of traditional families and values and godliness, etc. Great bit of marketing from Bush then, really. Great bit of marketing. So in terms of the economic policy, the biggest thing I mentioned about Bush is that um, he had these broad tax cuts. So basically, this just brought tax rates down for individuals and corporations all across the board, which really helped contribute to the budget deficit, right? We yeah. had a surplus under Clinton mm-hmm. and the Republicans in Congress. Now you have Bush in, and they pass these broad tax cuts, and they start increasing the size of the, the debt, you know, the, the deficit. The deficit refers to the budget year on year. The debt is the cumulative amount that the country owes. Um, so the deficit starts increasing, which obviously drives the national debt. Yeah. Um, and, and there's other things. So the Patriot Act, which allows the government to spy on citizens without a warrant, basically. Oof. You know, NSA and tapping uh, communication lines, etc. That's all because of 9-11. Partial birth abortion ban. So... Oh, again, right, religious take, we're going to be against abortion. Yeah. Um, and they really came up with this gruesome, very rare case, but they sensationalize it where, oh, you know, if a child is um, half-born, can you basically kill it if it's going to be dying shortly after birth? And it's a very gruesome procedure where they kind of, like, cut the neck or something. Like, Oof. Yeah, and they're like, oh, we have, to, we have to ban this, even though it's extremely, extremely rare. Um, Medicare Modernization Act, right? So this yeah. is, again, this compassionate conservative, like, let's have Medicare, but let's make it more efficient. Mm. And it's, um, you know, it's pretty effective messaging, to be honest. I mean, Bush won re-election. Yeah. Um, even though, um, you know, the Katrina was a disaster in 04. Um, the Iraq War was an absolute disaster, quite frankly. Um, that stuff all came to a head. So by the time you got to 2006, the Democrats regained control of Congress and Nancy Pelosi became the first female speaker. Mm. Um, but yeah, all the spending um, on national security, Transport Security Administration, having to go to airports, massive military spending, very expensive wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. plus Bush tax cuts, that creates a government spending problem. Then you get to the recession basically in 2007 oh yeah with the subprime mortgage crisis all that stuff frankly spurred by mm. uh you know democrats signing on in the 90s to allow big banks to consolidate and then when there was the whole crash there was a lot of fear from the people trying to solve it they were adamant knowing that what the public backlash would be to get the the banks to figure it out themselves so this is when they was having all the meetings and bear in mind the ceos of like goldman sachs and uh, JP Morgan, they were kind of sat back thinking, oh no, it's fine, yeah. they'll they'll bail us out because they know they'll really need to, right? Mm-hmm. And then that is what ended up happening in the end. But um, it was, a, I believe it was Henry Paulson who, 
I think he'd be so he'd previously worked at Goldman Sachs and then he'd come into the the federal government to help, and he just knew that, given what the climate was in America, they couldn't be seen to bail out these companies and these banks, right? Mm-hmm. But then obviously that ended up having to happen. Where, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, how you would have the investment commercial and those two Insurance, banks yeah. all having to be separate. But then mm-hmm. obviously at this point they had to like merge together so that the investment banks would have like the requisite deposits to like come together and mm-hmm. uh, be able to fund fund themselves. And then, unfortunately, you have something like American Insurance Group, which was just an absolute goddamn disaster of, <laughs> oh, <laughs> of yes. a company. Um, but it was really during that time, right, where you would get, especially because you can see the, the, the sentiment, can't you, of the Republic, we can't just have the government bail them out and save them, whereas the regular people are the ones struggling because they always get called out, right, all of the bonuses that... The AIG executives would have gotten. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you could see how such a big thing like that would. Yeah, it was it was a very strange time politically, um, because you had ordinary people that were suffering, uh, you had these massive companies that went under, and quite frankly, if they weren't bailed out, or you know the automobile companies weren't bailed out, mm. which a lot of sort of free market libertarian kind of conservative people were saying, let them fail, let them fail. Too big to fail. Yeah. The issue is that that would have such a massive knock-on effect that it would really screw the entire world economy. Yeah. Um, and the problem here, again, is that you come to a point of you know, total financial deregulation and companies running amok, doing whatever they want, especially banks. I mean, it basically just became a game. And the problem is that at the end of the day, you know, bail out the company or not, the only difference is whether or not you have a banking system afterwards. Mm. You basically had no choice. And, I mean, even some Democrats were saying, no, they messed up, let them go bankrupt, that's it, we have to restart. And so it was a weird thing where people on both sides of the aisle had both different opinions, right? Yeah. Um, Because it's just an unprecedented thing to say, well, what's more important? You know, is it something about corporate responsibility or is it the structure of our economy? Yeah. In, like, just the actual existence of the economy, shall we say. Mm. So... At the, the time, it was, it was absolutely, um, absolutely messy, for sure. For sure, yeah. Um, and there was, um, there was a Bush economic stimulus package that was passed by uh, the House, who obviously at this point would have been um, democratically controlled. Yeah. Uh, just sending tax rebate checks to people, tax breaks for struggling businesses, but this also continued when Obama was elected. Yeah. Bush left office as one of the most unpopular presidents at the end of his term, mm-hmm. um, which is strange because during 9-11, he was basically the most popular president in history. Yeah. Um, also, Katrina was in 2005, sorry. So that contributed to the midterms, but not during the Bush re-election campaign. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, the, I think the main thing just to focus on with Bush is just that a lot of the stuff that he did... Some of that sounds like what conservatives say today, especially in terms of religion uh, and kind of the the socially conservative policies, right? Yeah. Um, so Clinton as well was, was um, I mean, obviously more socially progressive, but Bush was definitely um, conservative in that sense, especially on like gay marriage, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you also didn't see that passed during the Clinton years, right? That was way ahead of its time, essentially. Mm. 
Um, but I think just com comparing all that to Trump today and the Republican Party of today is really interesting because it's so different. Um, you know, Bush created one of the largest marine wildlife reserves, um, like in the world, actually, which is like the northwestern Hawaiian um, right. islands. Um, so that's like, you know, great for con conservationists. Yeah. But then he's, you know, big on, uh, you know, drilling and getting oil and yeah, at the same time. So you're like, well, you know, he okay, he announces the Clear Skies Act, which um, tried to uh, create um, emissions trading programs that would reduce air pollution. But then that didn't even make it out of committee and get through Congress. And that was a Republican Congress at the time. So... Yeah. Bush is a mixed bag, but I think when you look and compare him to... So 2010, so 2008, Obama gets elected, right? Yeah. And in his first two years, you get Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, um, which creates, for example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh -huh. to protect against big banks and big organizations doing stuff against the interests of ordinary customers. Yeah. Um, you have Obamacare that gets passed with you know, help from conservative Democrats as well, like these blue dog Democrats who, for example, are against abortion. Mm. So it's not like it was a ton of liberals. And I think people really misunderstand that. Democrats came to power. They weren't all a bunch of liberals. Yeah. They have never been, and they are not ever going to be. Mass the vast majority of Democrats are not that far to the left, not mm. that opposed to, uh, you know, corporate spending, corporate finance, not opposed to term limits. Um, and in that sense, you can see why um, the arguments in 2010, especially, that came from Republicans and sort of libertarian, you know, don't tread on me types, very, um, they were very like, oh, these Democrats are all corrupt, they're in the pockets of big business. Well, quite frankly, that's, you know, the previous president and Democrats up till this point, you know, the Democrats bailing out all these big yeah. businesses and stuff. This this really drove a message home with the 2010 elections. And all these Republicans came into power with a sort of anti-government, uh, anti-intellectual, uh, mm. anti... Uh, a variety of things, really. They seem to be primarily driven by anti-government, but I think they're also driven by being against Obama because he's black. Yeah. Um, and that that is when you start to reach the point today where... Your Republicans have shifted over time to be so conservative and so to the right and especially now so libertarian that they're like, no government is the best government, basically. Like, as minimum as possible, we'll have a big military, um, but they criticize every single thing Obama did abroad, really. Right. Um, you know, and, and oh, increasing troops in Afghanistan, yeah. for example. He withdrew from Iraq, which allowed ISIS to, to grow in power. They weren't blaming Bush for even sending us there in the first place and getting rid of Saddam Hussein. They were blaming Obama for this. Totally short-sighted. Totally yeah. politically expedient in the short term. Um, and that totally led to Donald Trump today with his psycho rhetoric. It's only six years until Trump was elected mm. from the 2010 uh, Terrifying, midterms. isn't it? it? It really gets me wound up. I'm probably <laughs> speaking about 200 words per minute in terms of this yeah but i think so what i found with obama anyway is that 
kind of became more convinced that it was maybe one of the most consequential presidents ever because he certainly didn't waste his time no. when he was in, in office, right? And so, for example, if we start off with he appointed two women to the Supreme Court in 2009 and, and that was Sonia Sotomayor and then in 2010 with Elena Kagan and before that it was only in 81 and 93 that women had been appointed. and So 81 would have been George H.W. Bush... Uh, no, sorry, no, that was Ronald Reagan, would have been Reagan. Sandra Day O'Connor. 93 was... Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg under Clinton. Yeah, so then... That's a long time. Yeah, and then both were part of the decision to legalise same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And then he also put in the toughest climate regulations in American history. He opened up US to... He opened up US up to Cuba for the first time in 50-plus years. And he managed to reach that peaceful settlement to the nuclear standoff with Iran. That lasted a decade before he arrived in office. And that's another one that's really good to contrast today. Especially with a Trump withdrawing from it, right? Yeah, yeah because Iran nuclear that was America joining with every other developed country, basically, mm. um, to make a deal with Iran, where we recognize the fact that the more we can create economic trade, the more we can normalize relations and bring that country into the modern era. Yeah. And, you know, people, people often run against that, uh, and say, well, we have to completely oppress them. They should have no money and be poor. But that radicalizes them, and that makes them fucking crazy. And then they want to pursue nuclear weapons and blow up Israel and start swinging their dick around the Middle East and fight Saudi Arabia. And this sort of Shiite and Sunni Muslim conflict that it seems like it will never end. And fi- quite frankly, with Obama, the U.S. and the rest of the developed world realized economic progress will modernize these people and bring them away from creating nuclear weapons, right? And unfortunately, the U.S., you know, withdrew because um, it's it's this wider trend now of America shouldn't be involved anywhere abroad um, and and do anything abroad, and we should focus on ourselves, America first, and fuck everyone else. (laughs) Which is obviously not the way forward. Well, you know... Maybe it is for those people. Yeah. That's the way they see it. Um, and then if we're thinking what it managed to actually do within the country as well, right? There was the faint, the well, some would say infamous Obamacare for like, the national health care. And it had been a big goal for basically 100 years by liberals, right, to get some sort of national health care policy. This is something that was very much at the forefront, thinking that we have an NHS. Um, In the UK, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't really speak to many of the other countries' health systems, but... It seems at least more together than America's. Um, I mean, basically every other developed country guarantees yeah. affordable health care for its citizens, except the US. Yeah. And obviously that kind of flies right in the face of the new right, which was the right, I think we discussed it in the last episode, the rights to make money from businesses, like closing off public systems like healthcare and public schools to then be privatized, mm-hmm. right? So this is like in direct contrast to some of the things that Republicans want. And pretty much like most people before Obama had failed at the whole healthcare thing. And it really established healthcare as a right, but did leave a lot of people uninsured and laid a foundation. But it did lay a foundation for universal healthcare. And it's weird because I did watch a video and it was talking about people um, who had managed to get signed up to Obamacare, right? And it would show that 
Um, it was in more of those rural towns with people who maybe had never really had health insurance before. Mm-hmm. There was a definite increase, right? The, these were the people that were affected. It was, in some cases, going from like one in three people to more like 70% that had some form of health insurance put in place by this mm-hmm. in those rural towns. So um, a success from that perspective, but con- I'm aware that it is controversial. I mean, so the thing is that with Obamacare, um, again, it was really precariously cobbled together with, um, because the Democrats did not want to um, eliminate the filibuster, right? Um, yeah. And, and so thus have just a simple majority in the Senate to pass laws, right? So, mm. so they had to go for like the 60 out of 100. So they had to create, you know, a lot of um, kind of like coalition focused laws. So, the, you know, they had had to get Democrats who are more conservative religiously in terms of social stuff, etc., like abortion and, um, you know, not mandating religious organizations to have to pay for stuff like birth control, which, frankly, ultimately that just got struck down in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and, and so Obamacare wasn't really anywhere close to socialized medicine, which is treated as some sort of scary... Uh, kind of um, I don't I don't know what the term is scapegoat maybe yeah um just just sort of like terrifying straw man, um that you know is a symbol of failure and it's a Soviet style takeover and ordinary people will you know come out worse because mm-hmm. we can't have waiting lists and etc even though healthcare is basically unaffordable in the states for ordinary people to have most Oof. procedures. A lot of people aren't covered. And it's really interesting because so many of the people that stuff like Obamacare tries to cover are Republican voters. Mm. And so when you had uh, in the 20, um, oh, what is it, 18 midterms, yep. all of these Republicans were being sl- like slaughtered in town halls across the country because they were voting to repeal Obamacare. These are people that are Republican voters, especially rural, frankly, on the poor side, that need this law in order to have, for them, affordable health care. And these Republicans are trying to take it down because they want to privatize more, raise costs. It's aligned with big pharma, big insurance, hospitals, the whole healthcare uh, industry that makes tons of money. And they don't care that actually it's their own voters that would be mm. um, losing coverage. And it's one of the few examples where I believe Republican voters are actually trying to vote, or at least send a signal in their own interest because in this case you know for example they want to reduce funding for public schools they're the ones that attend the public schools yeah but oh no no we need smaller governments state governments over federal etc based on i don't even know what actual <laughs> rationale yeah but um obamacare is far from having everyone covered it's still under attack by trump and his administration um, because for them, it's all about money at the end of the day. It's not about mm. any kind of compassionate, conservative, people should have health care, we need to make it affordable. Trump campaigned on that, but Republicans still don't have a plan to replace Obamacare, and it's been 10 years, and they'll never have a plan because they just don't care about having everyone uh, covered with affordable health insurance or health care in some form. They just, they just don't. Terrible. Is there anything else that you want to hit from Obama? Conscious that I think we have a few minutes left. Um, we do have just a few minutes left. Um, not really in particular. Um, 
I, I just think the contrast to Trump are quite obvious, um, especially on foreign policy, but you know, even in domestic. And I mean, we haven't even touched on gun control, which is a whole other thing. But you know, I don't even need to say. Everyone listening knows who is aligned with gun control and who's mm. aligned against it uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, I think it's just really important for people to understand that um, it, it was the 2010 midterms, in my opinion, that really led to the sort of modern, st- strange, unrecognizable type of Republicans that you have that are just so staunch in their beliefs and unwilling to compromise politically further to the right than any Congress in history, really. Little overlap, little desire for compromise, and that's why you have so much gridlock today. And it's just one fundamental thing, right? You're recognizing people if they don't understand the need for change, or to even recognize that there's a potential for it. They're the type of people that are just going to run things into the ground, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, this idea that the Constitution should remain unchanged, even though it has an amendment feature built into it. Um, this sort of bizarre from 2010, you know, adherence to the Constitution, whatever that means. Look, again, it's just part of a wider anti-intellectual, anti-government um, political movement. And I think it has really dangerous implications if it continues. So I really, really hope that this year the American public is awake enough to these issues that they realize they need to get Trump out. And the Senate needs to have at least these obstructionist far-right senators voted out that's the only way we're going to make any progress and continue making laws that match uh you know climate change gun control economic development globalization and immigration and healthcare and everything else <laughs> well quite a journey we've been on really isn't it quite a journey we've covered what 150 ish years of history maybe more yeah just you know nothing small really nothing <laughs> small and um, thank you to our research teams Tom Butler and Alberto Pardo for all your hard work. They did a great job, really. Thanks out to them. I think we'll treat them to some some food soon. (laughs) Yeah, great, handsome, smart men. Oh, they are stunners, aren't they? They're wonderful. Well, Tom, this series has been really good fun. I hope people have enjoyed listening to it. Um, I think we're far from over in terms of looking at a lot of these kind of issues. I think there's Mm. a lot more that we could talk about, and we just don't have the time, but... Maybe a future episode on something topic-focused. Who knows? And hopefully the listeners, the listener viewers, have found interest in this. And, you know, it's all the more reason to go out and find out more for yourselves and understand everything that is going on right now because it is obviously such a wide-spanning thing. Yeah, we've learned a lot in this research for sure. Um, And it's been really hard to actually distill it into what's basically four (laughs) hours of time. I mean, we could talk all day about some of these precedents and, and how things have changed. Right, I guess we'll wrap it up there, and thank you for listening. Bye now. Bye.